Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, Adam Spinella is in the building. And we're going to dive deep on the NBA playoffs, as we have often done throughout these last four weeks. Adam and I are going to start on the weirdo, fun, wild Boston Celtics, Philadelphia 76ers game. James Harden goes for 42 points and nine assists in order to bring the 76ers back. He makes two clutch shots at the end of the fourth quarter and overtime to bring the Philadelphia 76ers back from the brink of a 3-1 deficit in that league, in that series to tie it at 2-2. Then we're going to do a deep dive into the Los Angeles Lakers defense against the Golden State Warriors in game three. Really, really impressive run, I thought, from the Los Angeles Lakers, in part due to some incredibly impressive schematic adjustments that I thought Darvin Ham made. We have talked a lot on this show throughout the season about questions I have about Darvin Ham. I think Darvin Ham coached about as good of a game as you can coach in game three of that series against the Golden State Warriors. And we're also going to talk then about some of the ways that the Warriors can adjust back after game three in order to maybe get that advantage back. I think that Lakers-Warriors is by far the most interesting series we have in the second round. I don't really think it's all that close. Finally, we're going to close a little bit on the series that I think is least interesting. Unfortunately, the New York Knicks and the Miami Heat. The Miami Heat are up 2-1 to following a 19-point victory in Game 3 on Friday night. Friday night, Saturday. It'd be Saturday, I guess that was. Yeah, something like that. And honestly, we're not even going to like really dive into the tape. It's kind of the same as what it was uh, in the first couple of games. And it's a little bit of a simple breakdown, but we'll talk about it a little bit. And then if you guys have any questions at the end, we might do some draft stuff very quickly because I love talking about the draft with Adam Spinella. So let's start with that Celtics 76ers game, Adam. A weird game that felt like the 76ers were on top for the first three quarters. It felt like Joel Embiid was dominating. I think he had 28 or 30 through the first three quarters and really uh, started to assert his will on that series. For the first time, it felt like really since returning from his injury, he had a solid game uh, in game two, if I remember, or no, it was game three. He had a pretty solid game. Uh, Game two was obviously a Celtics blowout. Uh, And then today he really was terrific for the first three quarters, but this was ultimately a James Harden show, and we're going to dive deep momentarily into how James Harden, in my opinion, uh, got loose a little bit with some tape and explain how uh, the Philadelphia 76ers made some real adjustments to allow that to happen. But first, Adam, I think, again, we have to talk about Boston's end-of-game execution, and unfortunately this is becoming a real issue for the Celtics that I think could really hinder them. Again, I think Joe Mazzulla did a great job in games two and three adjusting. 
I also think there is a real case that some of his decision-making in game one in terms of not choosing to double James Harden and take the ball out of his hands without Joel Embiid on the court, and now in game four choosing not to call timeouts late in these games kind of cost Boston in real substantial ways. And look, there's way more to it than you know singular decisions that happen on basketball courts, but I ride the roller coaster with Joe Missoula in terms of his coaching more than any coach in the league. Like there are moments where I think he does an absolutely phenomenal job. And then there are moments where I just wonder what in the entire fuck he is doing. And I don't know what to make of that yet. So the, the closest that I can get to making sense of it, Sam, is that he wants this to be a player led team more than a coach led team. He wants them to take ownership over this process if there are situations they get themselves into, figure out how to get yourselves out of it that allows you to take ownership and accountability. And the guys on the floor are the ones who do it anyway. I, I subscribe to this coaching philosophy myself. I totally believe in it and understand it. I, I think that there's a limit to where that goes, though. And if there's something we've seen throughout the entirety of this Celtics season under Missoula's tenure, it's that he is always deferential on timeouts. He does not want to call them. If he can help it, he'll let Opposing runs go on a little bit longer than some other coaches will. And we saw here at the the end of the game, he's not always going to call the timeout to organize them tactically. Now, at the end of regulation in a tie game, can certainly understand it a little bit more, right? That there's no need to let the Sixers make any defensive substitutions and get the right guys on the court to defend you or maybe take something away and, and really put it in a, a better scouted situation for the defense, you had Tyrese Maxey on the floor and guys that you could go after and attack one-on-one. And if you don't score, you're going to overtime. So you're you're not losing the game by not calling a timeout. When you're down one, the situation is very, very different. And with, I think, 18 seconds to go on the clock for the Celtics to not even get a shot off, it's it, it sounds so easy to pick apart the the, the result of this, right? say they got a good look in regulation, so good call. They didn't get a shot off in in overtime, so bad call. But it's about the process. As a coach, you have to be prepared and know exactly what you do so your guys are prepared for it every single time. And that is where we're starting to get the inconsistency with Missoula. There are times he wants to bite his tongue. I thought he did a great job of adjusting in games two and three and making things happen for his team would have liked him to keep up that momentum in the the late part of the game today because I think the Celtics really needed him to do so. Yeah, I I generally agree with all of that, and yet I thought that some of the buttons he pressed in the fourth quarter were really, really impressive. And in part, I think that fourth quarter run was, I don't know about led, but it it was really – brought upon I thought by Al Horford playing incredible defense uh in that little run there uh Al Horford forced Joel Embiid in the fourth quarter to go one for six uh from the field he blocked two of his shots and it felt like he was just making Joel catch the ball further and further out uh than what you would tend to see Joel obviously you know is more of a you know elbow player now as opposed to a low post player that's just kind of the reality of what where he likes to operate the situations he likes to play in but I thought Al Horford did a really good job in the fourth quarter of making life harder for Joel Embiid but I thought that there were a couple of very key adjustments that Doc Rivers made throughout the course of this game and and really just from the start of this game 
in order to bring the most out of James Harden. But I think also that might have kind of gassed Philadelphia a little bit late. So obviously the first one is to shorten the rotation, right? No Jalen McDaniels in this game, which was an interesting decision that I thought really paid dividends for reasons we'll talk about when we dive into James Harden a little bit here. Um, And then on top of it, like, you know, we've seen Montrezl Harrell like a couple of times in the playoffs. Still no shake Milton at this point in the playoffs. An eight-man rotation, and realistically, it was a seven-man rotation because they were just trying to get, like, a couple of minutes here and there for Paul Reed, uh, you know, I believe the start of the second and the fourth quarters, uh, if I remember correctly, in terms of the exact time that they gave Reed, like, two and a half minutes, three minutes at the start of each quarter there. But really, this was, we're playing the starters 40 minutes. We're we're making uh, Boston beat our best. We're making... Tobias Harris, Joel Embiid, Tyrese Maxey, James Harden play 45 minutes plus. And indeed, all those guys played 45 minutes. I think Joel Embiid ended up playing something like, what, you you would play 29 minutes. I think he played 26 and a half of those 29 minutes in the second quarter or in the second half. So I wonder how he kind of ends up bouncing back from that coming off of these injuries over the course of this uh, later stage uh, of the playoffs coming off of that injury. So part of that is a choice that Doc had to make to keep this series close and to make it work. I wonder if it will continue to pay dividends down the road with this shortened rotation, but undeniably it worked. Like I I think you cannot say anything else. Like they controlled the game through the first three quarters. uh, And then Boston made this little run uh, and it was big. It was a huge run on their part. I, I think Doc leaning into finding ways, and I know we'll talk about it. Like it, it's hard to have Rob Williams on the floor when Horford is guarding Joel Embiid one on one with some of the lineups that uh, Doc Rivers has really constructed and put out there. So there's a lot of tactical stuff. I know Doc Rivers doesn't get a ton of credit for things in, in Philadelphia sometimes, and the late game run that the Celtics made, you could tell like this was eventually going to slide down and people were going to be coming for Doc Rivers of, of blowing a big lead in this game. I thought he did a really good job today. Yeah. And it's worth explaining. I think what Joe Missoula has typically done in this series. I think he's tried as much as he can to match the Robert Williams minutes to the Jalen McDaniels minutes, which allows him to have Rob Williams on Jalen McDaniels and then just use Rob as a roaming helper. Right. And by doing that, Rob Williams has been able to just kind of like suck up all of the paint potential paint touches for James Harden in those minutes, all the potential paint touches uh, for Tyrese Maxey in those minutes, any sort of potential post up for Joel Embiid. He's always there and help any sort of elbow touch for Joel Embiid. He's always there and help. By removing McDaniels from the rotation, he made it much harder, I think, for Rob Williams to play on the play on the court at a really high level. Rob Williams was still a plus five in a game that they lost by a point. So Williams's defense was still impactful in some way. And yet I think it was in large part because they were going more against bench units for the Philadelphia 76ers when Williams is out there, as opposed to his really high level play. But we're going to kind of see this as we dive into the Harden tape. And I think it's worth doing that now. Let, let's just start here. Sure. 
What was most impressive to you about the way James Harden operated in this game? To me, it's shiftiness. Uh, you know, we talk a lot over the last year or so about him feeling like he's lost a step in some regard. And in game one, he looked like he had it back. He was getting to the mid range into his spots, getting to the basket when he needed to. Uh, games two and three, not so much. But when he is shifty and quick and a decisive driver willing to get to the basket, he's a really impactful player because I think Doc Rivers has allowed him to operate in the mid-range more than he has ever really been able to as a, an alpha scorer in this league. And he's so damn good at it. So it's, it's the perfect complement to, uh, to everything else in his game. Yeah, I think the big thing for me with Harden in this game was he finally got paint touches again. Being able to get paint touches is incredibly important for Harden. We saw that in terms of his passing and playmaking. We're going to focus on the scoring here. But being able to get paint touches, I think, was the critical thing here for James Harden's success in this game. And I think we saw two reasons. First and foremost, I mentioned the Jalen McDaniels thing. Second, as we're going to kind of dive into this tape here, one thing I want you guys to notice is the way – that he often has Tyrese Maxey on the opposite wing, which means Tyrese Maxey is going to be one pass away for James Harden to make. And if Tyrese Maxey, a 40% three-point shooter, is one pass away, you can't really help off of him in that elbow area. Uh, You can't dig down into the nail and try and stop James Harden from getting those paint touches. I thought that they did a really good job of that in games two and three. They made James Harden a real perimeter player. I thought in game four, because of the adjustment to have Maxi constantly on the opposite wing, there was no nail help consistently, which led to Harden being able to get penetration. So here we're going to kind of dive in. Uh, this is just going to be a screen here from Joel Embiid. We're going to get the switch. Uh, This is kind of like a soft drop, but it ends up turning into a switch here uh, on Harden. And Harden ends up bullying Al Horford all the way to the basket at the 10-15 mark. Here we go again. This is going to be the second one. This is just a side ball screen. Uh, Joel Embiid's going to come up. He's going to set the screen. And look, look at how Derek White has to be able to close out onto Tyrese Maxey. He can't take that extra step in entirely into the nail area in order to cut off that driving lane for James Harden because Maxi is the guy waiting on the wing. He's in perfect shooting position. This is a kick out. This is a wide open three for Maxi. He probably makes those at 65%. Uh, you know, if it's wide open in the way it would be here. So it ends up being kind of an ole from Derek White. And, you know, James Harden is powerful enough. He's physical enough to where he's going to be able to beat and get an angle on Jason Tatum for as good as Jason Tatum is as a defender. He ends up getting fouled here. Again, we're going to see this is now uh, more bench units at the three-minute mark of the first quarter on the court. We have DeAnthony Melton on the court. We have George Niang on the court. Uh, and I believe that Grant Williams is also on the court yep. here. Yeah, this is Grant. Or no, that's Malcolm Brogdon. I'm sorry, that's Malcolm Brogdon uh, guarding James Harden. He is getting through this screen here from Niang, and this is with Robert Williams. Robert Williams is forced to be the primary player involved in the screen action as opposed to being the help defender if somebody 
like Jalen McDaniels is on the court. Here, Harden isolates Rob Williams. I think that the 76ers did a really good job in this game of getting James Harden isolated on the wing and making it so that the help defense a lot of the time really wasn't available to come over, especially with some of the shooters that were on the court. So here, again, Malcolm Brogdon isn't really able to dig down into the nail, as you'll see as we're rewinding, because, again, he has George Niang one pass away. So he kind of goes for the little stunt more than the help, and that's just an easy drive through there by Harden. Harden gets all the way to the rim. That's a finish. Here we go again. This is just a high ball screen here. Paul Reed's going to come up involving Robert Williams again. Robert Williams switched on to James Harden. Here we go again. This is just, I, I think that what you'll see here is that Maxi is actually not on the court on this possession. It's melting in for the opposite wing, which means Jalen Brown is probably going to be able to help onto the nail a little bit more substantially there as he rises up uh, onto the wing area. Instead, Harden just decides to hit the step back. Harden is one of those guys that I think gets a really bad rap for not being a high-level processor of basketball. I think he's an incredible processor of basketball in terms of like spatially what's going yeah. on on the court. And he takes a r really, really uh, early shot there. Another thing that the 76ers did a little bit more often in this game, I thought they set higher ball screens up the court, almost a half court a little bit more often to get James Harden in space. Again, this is Rob Williams involved in the primary action here by setting that higher up the screen. You're forcing Williams to kind of be in an even deeper drop than what is normal. Uh, he gets downhill. If Harden's downhill like he is, it's just going to be really hard. Brogdon ends up recovering, and this is where you wanted to talk about some of the mid-range stuff from James Harden. I mean, I think Harden did a really good job here. This is paint. These are paint touches. This is perimeter penetration. And then this is a mid range shot, but it's from the paint is the key. It's kind of, it's a shorter mid range shot where he's going to be able to use his touch and actually be able to score. Well, and the, the huge part about it here is when he comes off of these screens and he sees Rob Williams there, he wants that switch. We saw it in the possession earlier where he, he shot the three over the top of Williams. Like when he comes off these high ball screens, he wants to force Rob Williams to switch. And all that Rob keeps doing is retreating, retreating, retreating. Harden just takes the space. And the fact that he's such a lethal mid-range shooter means he doesn't have to get all the way to the rim here. He can just play the cat and mouse game, see when – he has the advantage to rise into his shot and take it every time. Yeah, 100%. And that's at the 10-20 mark of the second quarter. Now we're at the 10-minute mark of the second quarter. Uh, James Harden here. He's going to take this high ball screen from Paul Reed. A fairly good screen from Paul Reed, which is sometimes <laughs> hit or miss. And again, it's Robert Williams. This is why Robert Williams didn't seem to play a crazy amount, in my opinion, in the uh, second half. It's because... There was not someone for him to be the help man and the roamer off of. And because of that, they had to play him just straight up in ball screen actions. We're going to talk a lot about this in the Lakers series as well. Forcing Rob Williams to be the man in ball screen actions by shortening the rotation, I think was really, really smart. There you go. You see just like a little hostage dribble there from James Harden uh, after the high ball screen against Grant Williams and that little hostage dribble gets hardened to his preferred left side, which allows him to get into that little paint floater again. Paint touches. That was the key for James Harden in this game, getting more paint touches. 
eight and a half minute mark now of the second quarter. Paul Reed's going to come up. He's going to set like almost like a little somewhere between a step up screen and like a normal screen, right? Uh, you know, 45 degree angle. And then he just flips it again. He gets that little bit of space on Brogdon, gets that paint touch, gets that mid range shot again. Uh, note again who the big man is there. It's Rob Williams. Uh, Rob Williams as the primary man in ball screens isn't always the best bet for the Boston Celtics. You really want him to be the roamer on the backside more often than he is the uh, primary pick and roll defender. Yeah. And and that was an adjustment that started a year ago for the Celtics. Ime Yudoka always did a fantastic job of finding ways to switch with everybody else on ball screens and then have Rob Williams be on the back line to clean things up. Mm-hmm. Uh, Missoula seems to have continued that and, and he's got to tinker with a couple things ahead of the, the rest of the series to find ways to make that happen again. But Philly, great job recognizing that preference and really attacking it. And if you remember, one of the things I talked about actually in game three in terms of the adjustments that I loved from Joe Missoula was playing small more often, playing those five out lineups uh, that really stretched out the Philadelphia 76ers. The other problem with the Rob Williams lineup right now is it doesn't stretch out the 76ers at all uh, in terms of five out offense for allowing Joel Embiid to stay a little bit closer to the basket a little bit more often. A lot of those plays came with Paul Reed on the court, of course, Uh but I think that, you know, I think nine minutes of Rob Williams' time today came with Joel Embiid on the court. So it's a tricky mix and a tricky blend that I think Missoula is going to have to find. But I think that more often than not, going smaller is going to be their ticket in this series. End of the second quarter here, Joel Embiid's going to come up. He's going to set a screen. They're going to get the Al Horford switch. And this is just a sidestep three from Harden. You know, when you get him going like this, he's going to start to knock these down and he's going to really start to feel it. Uh, again, though, this is a switch where they have Jalen Brown on the weak side. You have Malcolm Brogdon there and you have Marcus Smart essentially at the nail, like all the way past the nail in terms of help because they're, you know, Joel Embiid is beyond the three point line and they're happy with Joel if he's taking three pointers. So you're seeing here again, when the nail help is there, Harden is stepping back. When it's not there, he is going to try and drive and get that paint penetration. Here we go again. This is actually the antithesis of what I just said, funny enough. He just gets that separation on Marcus Smart at the 1030 mark of the third quarter. But the thing I wanted to point out here again is look at how he's isolated on one side of the court with no help. Again, this is really, really smart stuff, I think, from Doc Rivers to get him isolated on his own, one-on-one, has an entire side of the court to himself. Again, you will see here, though, that he has Maxi as that that wingman, where opposite wing, it's going to be hard for Tatum to come all the way in and help. He doesn't take it here. He just gets that separation from Smart, makes the shot at the 10.30 mark of the third quarter, eight-minute mark of the third quarter now. And Bede's going to set that high screen again, and that's going to allow Harden to get downhill against Horford. Here we go. He's just at the elbow. Now he's going to string out Horford, and that's just going to be really tough. And again, because Maxi is your man on the opposite wing, you don't have that nail help against Al Horford. Going to be really hard for Al Horford to be able to stay in front. He does an okay job forcing the mid-range shot, but with the way Harden's playing, that little 12-foot mid-range jumper is going to be money every single time today. 
Uh, again, here we go. Emptied outside, essentially. Runs that little ball screen action. And I believe that's Jalen Brown. As soon as Harden recognizes that this is essentially going to be an ice coverage here, he just knows that he can walk into this three because Hor- Horford's going to have to take that slight step back. Walks into it. Three curtains again for Harden. Eight-minute mark of the fourth quarter now. Harden's going to get this ball. He's going to reverse it out to Melton. Melton's eventually going to reverse it back to Harden. Here we go again. Maxi comes up to opposite wing every single time we're seeing it. Maxi, opposite wingman, makes it so the nail help isn't going to be able to come. Doesn't come all the way there. Easy floater again for James Harden, right? So here, 235 mark of the fourth quarter. James Harden isolated on Jalen Brown. Tyrese Maxey again as the man on the wing. I think Jalen Brown was like okay on Harden today. Like I don't think he was disastrous by any stretch. But again, the Celtics need to find a way to be able to bring that nail help against Harden or else it's going to be really easy for him to get into the paint like this. And it's so much easier said than done. Uh, I think that we can conceptualize, particularly when there's an empty side, so they clear out the entire left wing for Harden and all four Sixers and, and four help Celtics are on the other side of the of the floor, like you can more easily send help to the nail and scramble out and rotate over to Maxi and then retreat back to, to different matchups. When the floor is is a little bit more spread or they've got, you know, two guys in each spot, it, it's it's not as easy to do. And then the other part of this is Joel Embiid on the interior, that if you just stick him closer to the blocks or the, the dunker spot while Harden is isolating, the, the Celtics can't just fully switch and rotate out and around things because what you'll end up seeing, and I think it was a, a possession or two earlier um, where, you know, Horford ended up getting switched out there. The Celtics are going small. They're not playing Rob Williams as much when Embiid is on the floor. So the result of that is when Horford is switched, onto James Harden at the point of attack, there isn't that size on the interior that can switch onto Embiid, deal with him on the glass, take any of that away. So the Celtics all have that rim pressure gravity that they still have to account for to take away the reigning MVP. So it's not just as simple as winning the nail. You have to be aware of the next domino that falls as well. What I wonder about Boston is I wonder if they start doing some interesting things where they help down to the nail with Brogdon here. And anytime that PJ Tucker is on the same side as Maxi, which we've seen a couple of times in these clips. Yep. I wonder if what they do is they bring that nail help uh, from, in this case, it would be Malcolm Brogdon. And then you basically force the corner man, if Tucker's in the corner, just to rotate up to Maxi to be ready to contest that Maxi shot and just leave PJ Tucker in the corner and see if that works. Uh, the adjustment there would be to take PJ Tucker off court. But if you do that, then you don't have a primary defender for one of Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum. So you probably do get an advantage there. It's going to be interesting to see how Boston counteracts this. There are a couple of things that you could do, though, I think that could at least allow that nail help to come again. Here we go. This is actually a small on small action here at the top early screen from Tyrese Maxey to try and get Harden switched on to Malcolm Brogdon. And then we've got just a drive here. This is just kind of easy from 
James Harden. This is this is one of the easier ones. It feels like uh, that early screen just gets the advantageous mismatch for yeah. Harden. Harden comes, and again, it's really hard to help off of Tobias Harris. Tobias Harris is again forty percent three point shooter, especially wide open from the corners. He's probably going to knock that down. It's hard for Tatum to do anything more than stunt there. Realistically, you probably need someone rotating over from the weak side there. But when someone just gets beat off the bounce like that, it's just hard for any help defender to really even realistically get there. So there, Harden gets all the way to the basket. Easy finish. Finally, uh, another small on small screen to try and get that Brogdon matchup. And instead of just attacking it, He's going to get the Horford switch this time at the 22nd mark of the fourth quarter. And this is the advantageous matchup that Harden looked for the entire game. Again, Maxi opposite wing here. Have Tucker on the opposite side of the court to Maxi, which means the option isn't even there to give nail help and then send the corner man up and force Tucker to be the shooter. Just really, really smart, I think. Positioning. It's not even like really schematic or anything like that. This is just spacing and positioning your guys in advantageous situations that really makes it work at a high level. This is just the floater that ties the game for the Philadelphia 76ers. Really, really uh, well-spaced, well-positioned. I like the smart comes over and tries to double basically off of Tucker late. Make Harden make that pass to P.J. Tucker if you have to, I think, especially cross-corner. I think that's a really, really smart play there from Marcus Smart, but it doesn't matter. And then this one. Some of the things that you might notice a couple of times throughout this game, uh, I'm trying to find a couple here where I kind of noticed that Jalen Brown occasionally was giving some same side help a little bit more often than what you would like to see. Uh, So is this one going to be one? No, So here you're going to see a late same side help from Jalen Brown. He's going to come over off of DeAnthony Melton. That's like right as Harden is kind of rising into his shot, though. Not that bad of a choice from Brown, but he does leave DeAnthony Melton open one pass away. That's a pass that James Harden can certainly make, right? Uh, There were a couple of moments throughout this game where it did feel like Jalen Brown kind of helped same side a little bit more than maybe we should have seen. And here, what we're going to see, Harden's going to inbound the ball to Embiid. You assume that this is just them trying to get Joel isolated on the block to try and tie the game. And indeed, I think that was the goal. Yeah, well, I, I think that Harden talked in the post-game interview about maybe turning this into a handoff and a two-man game action with the two of them. But Jalen Brown initially was kind of top-locked on him. So Joel just kind of turned and, and went towards the middle of the floor for that elbow okay. isolation. I buy that. That makes sense. Jalen is top-locked here, as you can see. That makes a lot of sense. And just space Harden to the corner. Yep. Yeah, that's that, that's a good move by Harden there. I agree with that move. So, and then you have Embiid just essentially on it. And again, Derek White has to be constantly aware of where Tyrese Maxey is there. Can't really help off of Maxey to the point where you can't close out. I think that the help man here, frankly, has to be Horford. Horford, yeah. Not Jalen Brown. 
doubling same side off of James Harden, who is on fire today. And I don't know. What are you thinking? Jalen's thought process was here. I, I, I can't, I kind of couldn't believe he did this. Yeah. Just yeah. like kind of a brain fade. We think. Yeah. I think it's just trying to make the play instead of making the right play. You know, I, my, my first boss that I worked for as a coach always used to say mismatches don't kill you. Uncontested shots do. And that's the biggest way of trying to get guys to stay disciplined. Like don't leave yeah. somebody who's wide open time and time and time again, particularly James freaking Hart. I mean, after all the clips we've just watched, this guy's on fire. You can't leave him. And the interesting thing here is that like the ball is like still not inbounded. This is still like the beginning of this set, right? It's pretty clear to me that Al Horford is supposed to be the help man here. They have him on PJ Tucker, right? Like he is supposed to be the guy that is in like help responsibilities here. So they get this Jason Tatum, Joel matchup. And I'm sure that Jalen's thought was like, this is a mismatch. I have to go help. But to me, this, this kind of needs to be a Horford help, right? Like this, I think if Horford helps earlier, Jalen is not likely to go and help, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I, the first adjustment that I see from Missoula is not having Horford on Joel Embiid here. And the big reason for that, I would think, is to pre- prevent Horford from guarding Harden in space. It's what we've seen on all these clips here today. That's where Harden was successful. But Jalen Brown in the deep corner is top-locking Harden. So you're not worried about a switch when you're top locking somebody, because you're just not letting him get to that point where he can come off of a handoff or another screen or even catch the ball. So I would have had, if you're going to top lock Harden, I would have had Horford on Embiid right here and try to hold yeah. up well at the point of attack because Al was so damn good in the fourth quarter, just winning battles one-on-one with Embiid at the elbows. He was terrific. He's always been that Joel kryptonite. I, I think this was an adjustment, maybe trying to be a little bit too cute, maybe to try to do something different. It was seriously built around P.J. Tucker and the idea of, of leaving him. But Horford yeah. ends up in no man's land. You don't have a great point of attack matchup on the reigning MVP. Undisciplined play from Jalen helping off the corner because he sees how physically dominating Embiid is right now on Tatum, just bullying him to wherever he wants. Like There are a lot of errors on this play that lead to the result. Yeah, I agree. And the fatal one is the... Jalen, same side help off of Joel. That wins the game for the Philadelphia 76ers. Uh, After, of course, uh, a possession where the Celtics did not get a shot off somehow. I was like kind of blown away by that. Uh, 2-2, now going back to Boston. Boston in the 76ers are in a three-game series. Boston will have two of those home games. I mean – I think Boston still has the advantage here. I still like, I believe that they should be favored in this series, but I I don't know. I mean, I I would think the fact that the 76ers had to like really exert a ton of minute load on their dudes in this game might come back to bite them, uh, especially given that Embiid is coming off of a bit of an injury and Harden, coming off of an injury in March, plus a little bit older. I would think that having to play those guys 46 and 47 minutes probably hinders them more than Boston having to play Tatum 47 and Brown 44. 
Do, do you have any, I mean, who do you think has the advantage here moving forward? So, I mean, look, made shots cure a multitude of sins. And this is now the second game where the Sixers have won in overtime or thrilling fashion late that they kind of feel lucky to escape in some way. And they've needed Herculean efforts from James Harden to be able to win. So I have always said the Celtics do an unbelievable job against MB. They just have the right personnel. They have length everywhere. Horford is the best perimeter uh, or elbow defender against Embiid one-on-one that, that there is in the league right now. So it really does come down to just how well James Harden plays and, and can he continue to make plays in space. I wonder if Missoula adjusts or what he does to adjust. He has to do something right there. And it's not as much the minutes that the Sixers have spent in this game, but they're, they don't have other bodies and other options to continue to adjust to things. This was kind of, it felt like an emptying of the clip from Doc Rivers to just get all of his guys on the floor at the same time. And they need to just recapture this magic for two of the next three games to move on. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Okay. Let's take a quick commercial break and then we're going to dive into the Lakers defense. We're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP, hackers, and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, for instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla Minus One recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan. And you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon Prime or something to be able to watch it. So when I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. NordVPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions. Just head to nordvpn.com slash game theory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y to claim your account. Plus, with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash game theory to claim your account. nordvpn.com slash game theory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord. And it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash game theory. 
Okay, Adam. Ready to do this? Let's talk about the Lakers' defense here. But first, let's, do it. let's talk about this game in general. The Lakers win one twenty-seven to ninety-seven uh, against the Golden State Warriors. This was as pure a blowout uh, as you will find in the second half, realistically. But in the first half, this was a really fun seesaw battle. And I really enjoyed throughout this game the way that Darvin Ham came up with some really intriguing adjustments to start the game. And then Golden State kind of figured out ways to counteract those adjustments. And then Darvin Ham adjusted back with Anthony Davis in many ways. And, and I do want to note again, like, we talked a lot about Anthony Davis in game one, incredible performance from him. This was again, Anthony Davis, you know, arguably best basketball player in the world. I think like you can make a genuine case for that uh, in terms of his two way prowess when he is on one like this, his problem is, you know, consistency, bringing it night after night after night. And in that vein, you probably can't call him the best basketball player in the world, but when he is at his peak, I'm not sure that there is a player that is impacting these playoffs more than Anthony Davis. Like, I think Jimmy Butler is like the guy that you have to say has been the MVP of the playoffs so far. And we'll talk about that momentarily, but undeniably like when Anthony Davis is on Anthony Davis, I think is making a bigger impact on these playoffs than anyone. It's just, you know, the light has gone on and off a little bit more often than you'd see. Well, I think he's, bringing consistent effort and impact on the defensive end. It's it's the offense, the scoring. Is he going to be dominant and assertive there? But he has been really good on defense for a long period of time now. Mm-hmm. Completely agree. In this game, Anthony Davis goes for 25 points, 13 rebounds, three assists, three steals, four blocks. I saw a lot of people after this game basically call this like a masterpiece from Anthony Davis defensively. I thought it was. I thought he was absolutely incredible in this game defensively. I thought there was so much more to it, though, for the Lakers. I thought this was a Lakers defensive performance, not Mm -hmm. necessarily just an Anthony Davis masterclass, even though Anthony Davis was, like, unbelievable and incredible. And none of this would work if they didn't have Anthony Davis. So he's the centerpiece that everything revolves around and everything works because of his presence. But I thought that the Lakers schematically – And I thought some of their uh, other players were really, really high level in this game. And ultimately, you know what? Like Golden State really struggled to get any sort of offense in the second and third quarters. Like really, truly struggled. And some of it to me was like a little bit dumbfounding. Uh, Not choosing to attack the basket when the Lakers had out like the Rui LeBron front court. That was like a choice to me that they made, not necessarily a Lakers-led decision. Uh, There were just some weird things that the Warriors did in this game again where I thought they didn't quite take advantage of what they could have in this game. Yeah, I think that's that's fair. Uh, To put all of the adjustments and and the tactical game in in context, I think we got to go back to game two a little bit. And one thing I've noticed from Steve Kerr more in this playoffs, whether it was in the first round against Sacramento or now is that he is more willing to lean into the Stephen Curry, Draymond green pick and roll 
earlier in series and just more often. If it's working, he's going to the well over and over and over again. I think in his early years as a coach and when they were at their dynastic peak, he didn't want to do that for long stretches until he absolutely had to. And we saw him go to it in game two of a series here against the Lakers. And I think that speaks to just how good this Lakers defense is. So the question for Darvin Ham and, and Los Angeles coming into game three, how were they going to adjust? Were they going to let yeah. Steph Curry just continue to come off of this time and time again? Or would there be some sort of wrinkle that Darvin Ham could throw at the Warriors to negate the impact of that action? And I think right from the beginning, we saw there certainly was something that Ham had up of his sleeve. Yeah, so throughout the series, Jared Vanderbilt has been the primary defender when he's on the court of Stephen Curry. In game three, they switched that. Instead of having Jared Vanderbilt be the man, they started Jared Vanderbilt on Draymond Green and then had Austin Reeves guard Stephen Curry. And the primary decision in terms of why that happened was in order to have Jared Vanderbilt switch on to Stephen Curry. Instead of playing drop or playing something else, they forced the switch, which blows up that action in some respect, because part of what makes Draymond Green such an incredible pick-and-roll player is the fact that he can read and diagnose this four-on-three better than maybe anybody in the NBA. But when you switch the action, there's no longer a four-on-three. The other piece of this is, when you move Jared Vanderbilt onto Draymond Green, you take Anthony Davis off of him. Yep. And you move Anthony Davis into more of a help side role. And that, I think, was the big key in this game. I thought Anthony Davis was absolutely phenomenal as a help side defender and just completely bottled up everything that the Warriors wanted to do. I know that there was a big discussion about the free throw disparity uh, in this game and like what the free throw disparity looks like in this series. Uh, the Lakers, I think, had twice as many free throws than the Warriors in this game. Part of that is because the Lakers attack the basket constantly. Yep. That's what they do. And because in game three, Anthony Davis was there waiting constantly at the rim and dissuaded the Warriors from attacking the basket. Yep. I think that is the biggest like free throw results should not be even every game no. when the strategy is drastically different and one strategy results in more attacking of the basket and the other strategy results in a more perimeter based game. Yeah. Like Sam, I'm so sick of hearing all these complaints about free throw disparities in individual games. Like the Lakers are constantly driving and trying to get to the basket. Like they're constantly putting pressure on the rim and they have big physical drivers. They've got guys who know how to use their body. Like they're going to get to the line more. They're, they're the leaders in free throw attempts because they're aggressive and that's their play style. And the Warriors, they shoot a decent amount of threes. They're a lot more skill and space and try to move the ball to find the open guy and take the right shot. They also, how many years in a row have we seen the Warriors will back cut or have somebody who circles through the lane and instead of taking a contested layup, throw it out to the perimeter to try to take a three. Like that's been their MO for a decade. We should not be surprised when the Lakers shoot this many more free throws than them. I just, I, I don't buy it. Yeah, the Warriors are dead last in free throw attempt rate this year. The Lakers are second in free throw attempt rate this year. You would expect the Lakers to get more free throws than the Golden State Warriors. 
let's dive into the tape though here and, and kind of jump into some of what we're talking about in terms of these actions, right? So this first clip here is going to be, as you can see, Austin Reeves. This is why did I grab this as the first clip? This is it's not the, exactly the switch on the handoff here. Oh, yeah, because this is Jamichael Green setting the screen, not Draymond Green. Okay, so this is at the 1045 mark of the first quarter. And Austin Reeves is guarding Stephen Curry. Jared Vanderbilt is in the corner guarding Draymond Green. Anthony Davis is guarding Jamichael Green, who is currently setting a screen for Stephen Curry. Here, what you're going to see is throughout the game on Stephen Curry, and this starts from the beginning of the game, the Lakers wanted to stop Stephen Curry from getting walk-in pull-up threes if Anthony Davis was involved in the primary action. Anthony Davis is playing high in essentially like a flatter coverage. It's not a hedge necessarily. It's not a, uh, it's not a drop either. They're playing flatter at the level of the screen. And basically saying, Steph, you're going to have to shoot over the top of Anthony Davis if you want to get into pull-ups. Okay, so here, Anthony Davis is the man here uh, guarding this screen. He's at the level. They're going to come across, and Steph is going to throw the ball to Draymond Green, and then it's just going to be a little pitch-back dribble handoff. And because Jared Vanderbilt is guarding Draymond Green – they just switch this. This is an easy switch, easy communication. Jared Vanderbilt stays in front, blows up what would have been if they were in more of a drop coverage setting or more of a help defense setting, probably an easy lane to the basket there. But because they're switching, it becomes a little bit more difficult. Steph resets, throw the ball, throws the ball out to Draymond Green, who throws the ball back out to Steph. Offensive set just kind of blows up at the end of the day, right? Uh, I believe that this is the same thing again here. Uh, here we go. Draymond, up, Steph. And again, there he is. The big thing to note here is Anthony Davis. Anthony Davis is waiting in help because he's not involved in the primary action here. This is something that happened throughout the course of this game. This game, this clip is almost a perfect encapsulation of yep. everything. I remember why I grabbed it now. This is basically a perfect encapsulation of everything that the Lakers and the Warriors were all about in this game when the Warriors had the ball. They switched this action with Draymond Green, Jared Vanderbilt onto Steph, reverse out, reverse back. Again, we're going to see here the primary action, Anthony Davis dropping back at the basket, Jamichael Green not really spacing to the corner yet. He's sitting in the dunker spot. Uh, and because he's sitting in the dunker spot, this is just an easy rotation for Anthony Davis. Uh, Anthony Davis, the basket, able to switch the Draymond Green, Stephen Curry pick and roll with Anthony Davis being able to stay at the basket. This was what they wanted throughout the course of this game. This was the primary way that the Lakers adjusted to what the Warriors were doing. Okay. Next possession, uh, 10-25 mark of the first quarter now. Uh, this is Jer uh, Andrew Wiggins bringing the ball up the court. Again, we see like kind of an early off-ball screen action between Stephen Curry and Draymond Green, and they just switch it from the jump, right? And here, Steph has Jared Vanderbilt on him. And what you'll notice here is like, again, Anthony Davis is just sitting in the paint. 
like does not care that Jermichael Green yeah. is in the corner wide open, one pass away. This is going to be a thing that they do throughout this game. They were good. If Jermichael Green is going to beat you, they're going to take that at the end of the day. So here, Draymond tries to even get like a little seal on Anthony Davis before he can get out there. But like Anthony gets out there, but they're just like not even all that worried. Anthony Davis closes it out with a rebound. Here we go again. This one you're going to see here is Jamichael Green coming up to set the screen. As you'll see throughout the course of this game, Stephen Curry, they played higher. They played flatter in ball screen coverages. Steph goes around. He drills it because Steph is going to do that from time to time. But they're playing higher. They're playing flatter. They're going to force him to shoot over the top of Anthony Davis. That is the goal here. Next possession. 617 mark of the first quarter. This is going to be Jamichael Green again coming up, setting a screen. Anthony Davis just completely commits to Stephen Curry here. They're going to be more than happy to let Jamichael Green shoot these wide open threes, and they're going to live with that. If Jamichael Green beats them, Jamichael Green beats them. Fully commits here, plays high, fully commits, contains. Okay, go ahead, Jamichael. If you make it, you make it. Next possession down the court here. This is going to be Jordan Poole. And I think that this is at the four-minute mark of the first quarter. What I think is interesting is the different ways they play different ball handlers uh, early versus later in the game. Here we go again. This is Jordan Poole bringing the ball up the court. He's going to throw the ball to Kevon Looney. Look at how deep Anthony Davis is. (laughs) Does not care. If you remember in the Kings series – a lot of the time, the Kings were willing to bring out Demonis Sabonis very high up onto Kevon Looney, and it opened the door for all sorts of back cuts, right? So here you're looking at like an exchange between Jordan Poole and Clay Thompson that can get a little bit confusing sometimes with some of these little rub actions, right? And because Anthony Davis is there, the Jordan Poole option is completely off the table, right? Like there's no way he's going to be able to back cut and get open in terms of timing. Even if he beats Lonnie Walker, there's no way. This is a beautiful top lock here from Dennis Schroeder coming through the action. Does a great job making it so that there is no angle to get Clay Thompson the ball. They bring Jordan Poole up off the action again, this time with Looney. Uh, Again, Anthony Davis. This is a deep drop from Anthony Davis when Looney is setting screens and when it's not Stephen Curry who is taking the ball here. Uh, Lonnie just fights around, doesn't really care. Uh, and this possession just blows up entirely, Great right? Team. Ends up in a Dante DiVincenzo turnover. Uh, just This is an awesome 17, 18, 19 second possession defensively from the Los Angeles Lakers. They stay tight. D'Angelo Russell is the one who's going to get credit for the steal, but it was all across the board, right? Perfect rotationally, perfect schematically, great strategy on the possession. I think that was terrific. And yet, in these last three minutes, look, the Warriors were up 30 to 23 at the end of the first quarter. They did a really good job in these last three minutes, and it was in part, I think, because of the strategy that they employed on non-Stephen Curry shooters, right? So here, you're going to see the goal with Kevon Looney screens and non-Steph ball handlers early was to play drop. And because of that, Clay Thompson walks into a wide open pull-up three, right? Probably not the most ideal strategy. And how we know this was the strategy is because I think you're going to see it again on literally the next possession. Uh, 
Here we go again. We're going to get a Kavon Looney early screen action here for Clay Thompson. And that's a screen again from Kavon Looney. Again, Anthony Davis in drop. He's just walking into this full up with a wide open shooting lane, right? That's 24 points now. That's six points in a minute there for the Golden State Warriors. And this is where the fun starts now because the Warriors have taken Jermichael Green off the court and they're rolling. And this is, in my opinion, with what the adjustment for the Warriors should be moving forward. Yep. One of Moses Moody, Dante DiVincenzo, or Jordan Poole should be on the court instead of Jermichael Green. Uh, I mentioned this is the next kind of proper adjustment after the Lakers adjusted back after game two. What you're going to see here is it's because Anthony Davis is guarding Draymond Green here because the Warriors have gone small where you have LeBron on Moses Moody, you have D'Angelo Russell on Andrew Wiggins, and you have Lonnie Walker, I believe that is, on Clay Thompson. Anthony Davis is now forced to be the primary man in the screen action. And as we saw last game, look, he does a pretty good job like getting a foot in there to kind of kick that ball. But this is where the Warriors are going to have success. Stephen Dre ball screens where they can hit that little quick pocket pass on the slip action where they can let Draymond Green diagnose the play, where they can let Stephen Curry diagnose the play. Here, Steph just does a phenomenal job beating Austin Reeves here. Uh, Forces the heavy closeout from Reeves. Wide open three from Steph there. That gets it to 37-29. Next possession down at the eight-minute mark of the third quarter. This is where we're, again, going to see just another Stephen Curry, Draymond Green ball screen. You get the nail help there from D'Angelo Russell to – an easy kick out on the same side there. This is why uh, it's often very difficult to nail help or like help deep down and dig down there off of shooters. Uh, This is just a kick out to Moses Moody open three. This is where the lead got to. And then the Warriors went on a 13 0 run. Right. But this is the adjustment for the Warriors. They got to play smaller. I think you got to go smaller. Uh, This is where you can schematically beat their defense. Anthony Davis commits there. You have the low man kind of committing into the paint. Wiggins open for three. You have D'Angelo Russell committing to help Draymond Green there a little bit too deep. I'm not totally sure why he did that when Anthony Davis had proper guarding position uh, in drop here or in like the flatter coverage here. Uh, Moses Moody wide open three. This is as deep as the lead got. I think that is a really good adjustment in terms of lineup for the Golden State Warriors. Now, As we're going to see here, we're in the middle of this run now for the Warriors, uh, or for the Lakers. I'm sorry. The Lakers, I think, went on a 13-0 run to get it up to 42-40 to uh, here. And what we're going to see, they decide not to involve Draymond in the ball screen action, which is a bit strange. And they have him go and set a screen on Walker as they look like Dre is going to come up and set a screen. But this is a counter, essentially, that they're running. Look at how high Anthony Davis is now after the first quarter on Clay Thompson coming off of those screen actions. Much higher, ready to be in a proper guarding position for a great three-point shooter, making it much more difficult. Here we go. We got to get back. 
I hit the wrong button, guys. Sorry about that again. This is going to be the Moody shot again, and we're back. Yep. So here, Draymond Green acts like he's going to set the screen, shoots down. There we go. Steal from Anthony Davis. Really sharp, really high level uh, from Anthony Davis there. Just ready to be in that lane, in the short roll area. Not a great pass from Clay, but nonetheless, uh, really smart. Again, we're like kind of at the end of this big Lakers run here, 44 to 42 now Lakers after it was just 40 to 29 Warriors. Uh, Here we go. Looney setting the screen action. Anthony Davis at the three-point line, ready to be there for a Stephen Curry pull-up three. He recovers back after he realizes that LeBron is there and help. Uh, after he realizes that Dennis Schroeder is there on his hip. And again, just clogging up everything. This is Anthony Davis being at his best, right? At the three-minute mark here of the second quarter. He is playing terrific defense at the level to start this possession. Making it so that Steph can't pull up there. He's right in perfect guarding position. Takes two slides with him. Allows his defender to recover on the ball. Then gets back to Kevon Looney. Kevon Looney gets crowded, turns the ball over. Anthony Davis is a stud. That's, who, that's what it comes down to. Defensively, this was a beautiful, terrific performance from Anthony Davis. Yeah, and look, I think any time the Warriors play Looney and Green or Green and, and Green with Jim Michael out there as well, like this is what we're going to see for the rest of the series, that they're, the Lakers can conceptually get to this. The, the Warriors – don't run anything too complex or, or complicated. Like maybe they get into some double drag stuff or some multiple screener actions that make it harder to decipher who switches and who drops. That hasn't always been Steve Kerr's MO. He wants to avoid sending multiple bodies towards Steph Curry because then it's easier to trap. So like you can look down the road and see different types of adjustments that may or may not come from this, but whenever the Warriors have those two bigger lineups out there and Draymond at the four. This to me is how the rest of the series is going to go. Well, and here, what you're going to see as well, for instance, let's go back to this play here when it's 37, 29, eight minute mark of the second quarter. The other big thing worth noting here is no Jared Vanderbilt. I think that what the way that the Lakers could have adjusted here, if they had Jared Vanderbilt on the court was you just have Anthony Davis guard Moses Moody, right? and you make Moses Moody beat you from three, I'm willing to do that. Like, I think Moses can really shoot, but I'd probably make him make the shots first if I was the Los Angeles Lakers, right? So what you could have done is AD on Moody. You could have then D'Angelo Russell on Clay, LeBron on Wiggins, and then you can again just switch this action with Vanderbilt on Dre, Reeves on Steph, and then you have Anthony Davis kind of, prowling and ready to go in the paint but that's a more intriguing difficult choice as a defensive team right uh because moody can really shoot whereas jermichael green i think can be a little bit hit or miss defense or as a shooter in general you're probably a little bit more comfortable with jermichael green shooting than moses moody right yeah yeah i think so but this is this is no jared vanderbilt on the court uh during that little run there and i think that that is a uh that is an interesting factor worth considering given the way that the Warriors got loose there uh, for that run. So here we're going to go, Stephen Curry. They're going to set like 
almost a double drag, but yeah. not really. The goal there is kind of to even get like LeBron switched on to Steph. It looks like they yeah. get the switch. And here, again, off ball action for Clay Thompson. Look at Anthony Davis just right in his grill, not letting him get any space whatsoever. Jared Vanderbilt out on to Clay now. They kind of recover after that beautiful – that was almost a hedge, to be honest, from Anthony Davis. That was the closest thing they ran to a hedge uh, that I saw this game was kind of Clay coming off of those actions. And here they get the recovery from Jared Vanderbilt, push off from Clay, foul. I don't know, maybe a little bit of a flop, but, you know. Jared got away with it. That's what matters. Yeah. So off ball action on the weak side here to start nine twenty mark of the third quarter. Uh, why did I Drop pull down. this? This is your classic split action for the Warriors. And I think that this is actually another potential adjustment for the Warriors. This is why I pulled this. They're down 15 here. The Lakers are rolling. They've completely shut off the tap for the Warriors offense. I think that they've scored something like, I think it's like 19 points in 15 minutes or so. So here they get into their classic split action. You're going to see Steph set the screen for Jamichael Green to come down onto the block. You're going to see here the way that the split action works a lot of the time is that they will have Steph then come off of this screen here from Clay and catch on the wing and get an open shot. Instead, they use Steph as kind of a dummy action there and have Clay come down and set a screen for Dre. Dre loops around and sets like another pseudo screen for Clay there. Clay comes around and hands it off. It gets the handoff from Jamichael Green. I like this oh, action as pretty. I love the action. I think it's a great action, but I particularly like it as a counter to what the Lakers are presenting because look at what it does. It actually engages Anthony Davis here as an on-ball defender as opposed to being the help man yep. who's just like yep. flying all over the place, right? Now, what I think they need to do here is they need to have Steph shoot toward the middle of the court, basically, during this clay action. And then they need to have clay instead of, you know, running off of the screen and, you know, playing as a handoff. The reason he's playing this as a handoff is because the Lakers are kind of trying to top lock as, as much as possible. So you play that as the counter into the handoff as opposed to trying to play it as a pass. But I think that if you have Steph, then shoot out, instead of using the dummy action there, you do run the dummy action. And then you have Steph run out toward the middle of the court you can run this action toward the wing instead of the corner. You can still have Jamichael hit that screen there on D'Angelo Russell, and you can pass it out instead of handball or hand it out, hand off it out. It's not really a way to put it. Um, and you can potentially get a shot, but because he curls there, he gets that contest on the Clay Thompson shot. It's great action. I think it's an interesting counter. I would just kind of do the spacing slightly differently because I really like the idea of engaging Anthony Davis as that kind of defender on the ball and not allowing him to be a help defender. 
Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it, that's that's the key to all of this. A really smart play in an ATO that the Warriors have run a few times. Like, they they love that split action where they throw the ball into the post, and that's an old triangle offense counter that Steve Kerr is familiar with back from his days with the Chicago Bulls where they would set that down screen for the opposite short corner and just get a bunch of, like, six-foot jumpers at the top of the arc. Uh, so the unique counter to wrap Clay around that and come off of a handoff – really interesting type of action. I, I can't help but watch almost all of these clips, Sam, and see Andrew Wiggins basically standing in the corner the entire time. And I wonder if there's a different way to maybe involve him a little bit more, not necessarily as a creator or a scorer, but as we saw in one of those clips earlier to try to get LeBron at least a little bit more engaged and have to defend because I haven't seen him work hard enough on the defensive end of the floor. And that's something that if I'm, I'm Steve Kerr, I really want to try to put him in more action. So I'm glad that you bring that up because that's the next possession. (laughs) So they bring up Andrew Wiggins in essentially like a double pin down action here. Uh, He's there. This is a potential shot for Wiggins, but look at the way Anthony Davis fights through. Look at his length. I mean, just the arm length is insane. Anthony Davis is ridiculous. I can see why he didn't want to take that shot. He fights over the top, just battles, scratches claws over the top, gets LeBron back in the play in recovery. It, Austin Reeves, beautiful help here as the low man, as you'll see. He's covering, I believe that's Jamichael Green, right? Perfect. Andrew Wiggins rightly reads that, I believe that's Dennis Schroeder, is shooting out to try and like X out onto Draymond Green. It's not really an X out, but it's a help out onto the one pass away man uh, from Schroeder there. No, that's Jared Vanderbilt. Sorry. Jared Vanderbilt's helping out onto Draymond Green. He reads that this is a potential wide open shot for Steph and forces Austin Reeves to close out heavy. Austin Reeves closes out heavy. Steph gets the easy drive to the basket, but by that point, Anthony Davis is there. And this entire possession again, it's just a masterclass from Anthony Davis entirely. Uh, Anthony Davis forces uh, just all sorts of random, you know, attempts to get around from Stephen Curry, right? So look, fights through here, forces it as he recovers, recovers back into the paint. Look at him stick with Steph, sticks with Steph, recovers back onto his man, ends the possession on a rebound. Anthony Davis stud defensively. There's no other way to put it. That's the eight minute mark in the third quarter. Now, go ahead. No, just huge play by Austin Reeves, too. The tag, the runoff of Steph to the line, the recovery on him. I know AD bought him a bunch of time, but uh, Reeves was great there, too. Yeah, he was. Absolutely terrific. Now we're at the eight-minute mark of the third quarter. This might even be the next possession. Again, AD, a little bit higher up the court there in the drop. Not quite a drop at the level. You know, he's playing, playing basically at the level of the screen there. Perfect recovery out. Look at this. Just Absolutely unbelievable movement there from Anthony Davis to recover out. Eventually it gets bounced around to Steph there, but just look at the movement. Look at Anthony Davis sliding everywhere, recovers out there, recovers out there, recovers out there. He's just everywhere. Yeah. Yep. And another proactive, if you could rewind this clip a little bit, uh, another proactive move by Steve Kerr to try to take advantage of them, essentially daring Jermichael Green to, to do anything on the perimeter. So as soon as they throw it back to him on the pop, you know, we saw him take one of those shots in the first half and the Lakers dare him to do it. Automatic dribble handoffs. It's always a great counter when you're a big man who doesn't want to shoot on the perimeter and you have space. 
because if you can set contact with the defender that you're handing the ball off to, then it essentially functions like a, a pick and roll in drop coverage. And that's where Clay got a couple threes in the first half. Like this is a great conceptual action from Steve Kerr, but Anthony Davis's mobility allows him to be everywhere. And it's just, it's amazing how time and time again, the Warriors are pressing solid buttons and the Lakers have an answer for it all. Yeah, I think that's right. And the other thing worth noting here, remember how in the first half they were playing heavy drop with uh, Clay, you know, interactions in on ball actions, right? Anthony Davis is way out at the level this time now. Yep. Uh, he is aggressively trying to stop Clay Thompson, pull or uh, you know, handoff threes, pull up threes, everything like that, and recovers back out onto the Jamichael shot. And look, yeah. ball comes out to Steph. Yeah. That's going to happen sometimes. But unbelievable defensive possession there, I thought, from Anthony Davis. Here we go again. Uh, Kevon Looney back on the court. Heavy, way far back. Steph comes out, realizes the Steph interaction, comes out higher than what he normally does on Kevon Looney interactions, playing closer to the level there. Uh, and again, Anthony Davis just staying in front, staying in front, staying in front again. And there it is, the seven minute or six and a half minute mark. Eventually he gets dunked on, but that's because he's flying around literally everywhere on this possession. Yeah. Like, Anthony Davis contains Steph like four separate times as a driver, swats his shot, ball rotates out, and he's out of position trying to fly back into the play. Yeah, I guess Wiggins dunked on him, but like it, it comes from literally being every single place, everywhere, all at once uh, from Anthony Davis defensively. Just an unbelievable Anthony Davis game defensively. He was so good. Yeah. So here, this is Kevon Looney coming up. Again, Anthony Davis, right at the level there, right at the level of the three-point line, throws the ball back to Looney, and again, just very, very deep. Anthony Davis is very, very deep here. Uh, Clay Thompson comes off of this, ends up throwing it away because Anthony Davis is just there, ready to contain. And this is just phenomenal stuff from Anthony Davis. This entire game defensively completely blew up everything the Warriors wanted to do. Uh, and particularly one thing we should maybe talk about here is Draymond Green is not on the court for a lot of this uh, in the second half. Yeah. Foul trouble, yep. right? Has five fouls. This probably looks a little bit different in the second half in terms of adjustments for the Warriors. If Draymond Green is able to play, more than I think he played like 23 minutes in this game, yeah. right? Something along the yeah, 23 minutes. Yeah. Uh, it's a little bit different if Draymond Green is out there in terms of what they're doing. I would imagine they would have Dre out there for Looney, uh, which then becomes a lot more interesting in terms of the counters. All due respect to Looney, who had a great Sacramento series. This is not quite the series for him, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah I agree. Again, perfect work. Just perfect work containing. Uh, there from Anthony Davis. Here we go again, Stephen Curry. Uh, one thing that we are going to see here and that I think we might see a little bit more of in this series, I would not be surprised to see the Warriors set more small-on-small -small screening actions. That's a second counter. I like the split action counter a little bit more to engage Davis as the primary post defender. And then I like small-on-small -small screening actions for them to try and get Stephen Curry loose, 
He drills this one, obviously, just over the top of Russell. But basically anything where you don't have to involve Anthony Davis either as a help defender or as like the primary screen defender when it's not Draymond Green is the screener, right? You're going to play minutes without Draymond Green in this series. That's the reality of the situation. I love the idea of going small on small screening action to keep Anthony Davis out of the play. Uh, That is at the 420 mark of the third quarter. This one is the 120 mark of the third quarter. Uh, This is going to be Dante DiVincenzo coming up. And again, higher up on clay, higher up on clay, recovers. And it's just perfect. Feeds clay into the help with Rui. Rui's there. Perfect contest, rebound. Everything was great here. And look, I think, again, as we talked about, the Warriors, I'm not going to show anything from the fourth. The fourth ended yes. up being just like a total blowout, and it's not really worth it. But we talked about some counters that we think the Warriors can run. Smaller on small, screening actions when Draymond is off the court. Going with a four-guard alignment around Draymond, I think, is a key. But the bigger key is they need something from Jordan Poole if they're going to play that guard alignment, right? You need something from Jordan Poole, and Jordan Poole's not really giving it right now. Again, last night, Jordan Poole goes two for nine from the field, 0 for four from three, has six assists, but turns it over four times. They need something from Jordan Poole. Otherwise, your options are Moses Moody or Dante DiVincenzo. I'm kind of expecting one of those two to start the next game, if I'm being honest. I would start Moody because I think DiVincenzo allows you to have another ball handler who's fresh to make good decisions and can, you know, be guarded outside the three point line when one of Steph or Clay need to sit a little bit more. Um, and that's, I know that's what Jordan Poole does and, and his role in this team is to also handle and create his own shot. But DiVincenzo is a much more sound decision maker. Uh, so I would go with Moses Moody if I were to try to make that type of adjustment. I agree like Looney isn't the guy that I would have out there. And it's more so just for the fact that we've seen the Lakers kind of dominate Looney Draymond minutes when they're together because of this new uh, lineup tandem they were able to put out there. I, I think there are ways that Steve Kerr did and will continue to try to dial up counters for that. We saw the pop to the dribble handoff from Jermichael Green. Juan Looney can do some of that stuff. We saw throwing the ball into whoever Anthony Davis is guarding and playing out of the post split action that they have. I wouldn't be surprised if they throw the ball to Draymond or to Looney at the top of the key and run some corner slip split actions over there with Steph and clay together, just trying to see if you can force a miscommunication that gets an open shot. So there are still smaller things that they can do, but on the whole, I I do think Moses Moody and more of him is going to be a net positive for the, the warriors. It's time to go small. My worry with Moody is I do think they would guard Moody with Anthony Davis, and I think they'd be less likely to guard Anthony to guard Dante with Anthony Davis for whatever. Like I, that's just my feeling on it. Like I think that they would probably try to avoid AD on the guy who's like the ball handler, as you're saying with Dante. I think that they would be more likely to have AD guard Draymond Green, which is ultimately the goal of what you're trying to do if you're the Warriors in those settings. Can I give you another counterpoint here? Yeah. I would actually put AD on Wiggins. So that is an option for sure, but then you're involving LeBron, LeBron. in more actions. Yep. And I think 
you know, that's probably something the Warriors are comfortable with, right? Sure. But I think at the end of the day, if you are going to switch those actions anyway, and you have AD to be that generational rim protector on the backside, that's fine. I also think that you can play a little bit more show and recover with LeBron in those situations and know that AD is back there if Draymond tries to slip or play out of that short role. And and the biggest reason for that, whenever they the Warriors have that situation and set up, Wiggins is always in the opposite corner because his his <clears throat> role in the offense is to automatically back cut along the baseline to the rim. Mm-hmm. So he's going to end up meeting AD there anyway. So for what it's worth, I do think that is the counter that you do then. Um, I, I think that you're in this circumstance. I think you're right on that. My question to you to throw it back to you then would be, do you switch the on balls with LeBron and put LeBron on Steph regularly? Do you put LeBron? Here's the question. Do you put LeBron on Dre and then Vanderbilt back on Steph and then Reeves on Clay and Russell on uh, who would that be? No, I'd, I'd put Le, I'd put LeBron on Moody or DiVincenzo. Whichever one of those is out there on the floor. I'd continue okay. with the Reeves-Vanderbilt matchup on. Yep. And then I'd continue to face guard Clay with D'Angelo Russell, put AD yep. on Wiggins, and have him be more of the, the helper at the rim because if Draymond catches the ball and drives the basket at all, we know that AD is going to be there to help, and his man is going to either automatically – cut to the rim or you're giving up an uncontested three to Wiggins in the corner. And that's probably better than anything you'd give up to Steph anyway. Yeah. I like that. I think that's probably the counter. I think that's probably the right counter in that circumstance. But if Wiggins makes open threes, then you're fucked. And I think that's, you know, a real you, possibility, you, but, but you then, gotta live with it. But then your counter is to put AD on Moody DiVincenzo and make those guys shoot. There are a number of different different ways you're going to be able to do this, but this is where the series, I think, gets really, really fun. Yeah. Is now the Warriors countered back to the Lakers in Game 2. The Lakers have countered back to the Warriors in Game 3. Now we see what happens in Game 4. This is going to be fascinating. I, I do think the Warriors come out and play small, though. That's my prediction at this point. I think the Warriors come out, they play small, uh, and make... AD guard in more ball screens would be my read. Yeah. Uh, really impressed by Anthony Davis, really super impressed by Darvin ham and what he's doing as a first year head coach here in the playoffs. Uh, excellent stuff from him. And I think Steve Kerr is still an underrated tactical coach. He does a really nice job of thinking one step ahead and, and dialing up counters that all flow with however they're guarded or getting his best guys shots it's going to be a really fun series with punch counter punch the rest of the way. Yeah. Also, apparently Jokic just shoved uh, Matt Ishbia, uh, the Phoenix Suns owner. I mean, good flop by Ishbia there. I think that was actually like a pretty, pretty impressive, uh, pretty impressive move there. We know, we know Tom Izzo coaches that. Yeah, I respect it. I, I respect the move. Yeah. I mean, what are we? This is, this is, I'm going to have to watch this full game uh, very soon now, apparently. This is apparently a very bizarre showing uh, from everything we're seeing. It's the end of the third. The Suns are up 98 92. Jokic has 42 points. Uh, Devin Booker has 36 and Durant has 27. So we're just going crazy here, apparently. This is a bonkers game. All right, then. There's a non-zero chance I go live on YouTube again uh, after (laughs) 
this game by myself without spins uh, to talk about this because what in the entire fuck just happened in basketball? Um, okay, real quick on Nick's Heat. We think Nick's Heat, frankly, is like kind of over, right? Yeah. He- Look, the the Knicks haven't made a shot in four weeks from three. I, I don't know what to say. Like they just they keep missing shots, and Miami is outplaying them in every other stretch. So when when you're getting open shots and you don't make them, hard to win. So my reason I say that I think this is a really tough spot for the Knicks is the Knicks have a distinct schematic disadvantage against the heat because Eric Spolstra is the best coach in the NBA right now, by far. They have a distinct disadvantage in terms of their shooting right now. Manuel quickly is now hurt has a sprained ankle. Quentin Grimes. It feels like with his shoulder injury is not quite right in terms of shooting from three. Julius Randall is not quite right right now in terms of injury. It seems like he's been kind of invisible in this series on top of it. That well, that allows the heat to just completely pack the paint. Um, we're not going to even dive into tape on this because it's just like almost just worth explaining. It allows the heat com- to completely pack the paint and make those other guys, Josh Hart, RJ Barrett, etc., beat you from three, Quentin Grimes at times. If you look at the box score from game three, uh, you will see you know Josh Hart two for six, RJ Barrett two for seven, Emmanuel quickly two for eight before he you know went down with the injury late. Uh, Obi Toppin, one for four from three. Quentin Grimes, one for four. They go eight of 40 from three. They lose this game even if they go 14 of 40 from three and shoot 35%, which would be your expected number, right? So, like, the fact – and that was in a game where the Heat shot 22% from three and, like, did not really play well on offense, right? So all of this is just very concerning across the board if I was a Knicks fan – it feels like the Heat have a very real schematic advantage. They also have the schematic advantage on the glass because if you remember in game in yeah. the Cavs series, part of the way the Knicks were able to generate offense was destroying the defense or the offensive glass. Knicks are a top five offensive rebounding team. The Cavs were a bottom five defensive rebounding team over the course of like post All Star break. The Heat are a top five defensive rebounding team, yeah. so the Knicks also can't get those second chance opportunities. On top of all of these schematic advantages, the Heat also have the best player in the series, Jimmy Butler. And Jimmy Butler was back in game three and went off and dropped just a yeoman's 28 points on 21 shots, like a normal, you know, normal game, it seemed like. So it was what a bizarre, bizarre game. Yeah, look, the the Knicks have Brunson and Randall and Barrett and guys who are their primary options who like to be very patient and play off two feet and like half spin and pump fake their way to death when they drive. And Miami is just as soon as a help defender sees the back of their head going and sending to and saying, we dare you to, to shoot the ball. And they can't make them. Miami rebounds. Kevin Love throws one or two outlet bombs a game. Now the Knicks are a little bit more worried about crashing the offensive glass and they can't necessarily generate all those extra possessions. It You have to make shots. And the roster is built in a way with their stars that there aren't other ways to adjust with, uh, with Barrett, Brunson, and Randall. Like those guys are who they are. They're deliberate. 
strong bodied want to muscle you scorers. They're not going to dribble around anybody and continually quick finish their way to death. So this is what it's going to be. They need more shooting. Yep. I think that's right. They need more shooting. They don't really have it. Uh, and the heater just the, the heater better than this team. It feels better. like right now, and by the way, the Knicks beat the heat three times in the regular season, if I remember correctly. So I get why Knicks fans would think that this series is still like reasonably on. Yeah. It's just for me, it really comes down to this team making threes. Like they are going to have to shoot the heat out of this shell defense, basically. And they're going to need Julius Randle, Josh Hart, RJ Barrett, Obi Top, and Quentin Grimes to do it. And with Grimes's injury, with Quickly's injury, with Randle's injury, where he still hasn't looked 100% yet, I don't think. Um, I, I just don't think they really have the dudes to do it right now, unfortunately. Yep. Yep. Unfortunate, but kind of is where it is right now. And the legend of Eric Spolster continues. Yeah. I think that's a hundred percent right. Uh, you have anything else uh, or do we want to get out of here at one twenty-five? Uh, nothing really else for me. I just, I got to go find this, uh, Jokic shove and this ish be a flop. This is, it was, it was a good flop. It was pretty, pretty good flop. I, I was, uh, that. I, I was I was impressed with the flop by uh, by Matt Ishbia. All right, I'm bringing it up on my phone. I gotta I gotta see this right now. Yeah, I was uh, I was quite impressed that that happened. I'm also not impressed. Like, what are we doing here? Why? Oh, that's a flop and a half. I love that's it. a good flop. That's a good Matt Ishbia flop there. Uh, okay, Spins, tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people what's going on. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me, Sam. Uh, you can find me on YouTube. My name, Adam Spinella, on Twitter, at one underscore, or my substack, theboxin1.substack.com. A lot of draft stuff coming out this week and moving forward. We are about eight days, depending on when you're listening to this, eight or nine days away from the draft lottery. Cannot wait for that. Uh, so exciting time in draft world. And we're in the thick of the NBA playoffs. What could be better? Nothing could be better. Uh, you will find out in the episode description if I came back and podcasted on this weirdo Nuggets Suns game by myself after Spins leaves. Uh, I will go live after if this continues to be weird and after I watch this game and like I feel like I have a handle on it. Uh, if not, then you know I will talk about this game probably tomorrow on the next podcast. I will be back tomorrow certainly. Uh, and we'll be podcasting tomorrow about basketball uh, live on YouTube. By the way, go subscribe to the YouTube channel, Sam or uh, Game Theory Podcast with Sam Vecini. Over on YouTube, it is the best way to get good podcasting content. There is no question about that. Uh, trying to think what else. I will have a redraft of the 2022 NBA draft up on The Athletic tomorrow. Uh, not tomorrow, the next day, Tuesday, that is. Uh, Tuesday, that will go up on The Athletic. Uh, that's about all I've got. I'm just diving through draft guide. Now I'm through like 40 profiles. I'm feeling good. We're rolling right along. Okay. Uh, thank you all for listening. If I'm coming back, ignore this and you will see that you still have a lot of time remaining in this episode. If not until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye. Bye.